0: Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. Like most historians, I spend a lot of time thinking about audience. Whether I'm speaking at an academic meeting, giving a talk for the general public, or teaching my students, I have to figure out how to communicate my ideas in different forums. The voice that I use on this podcast is different, so to speak, than one that I might use when I write for a professional audience or lecture in a classroom. I have to consider who's in the room at any given moment. But I have no idea how to write for small children. And while I have read my fair share of Hungry Caterpillar or Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus over the last few years, I'm always amazed at how authors are able to meet young children where they are. Fortunately, on today's episode, our guest is someone who knows how to do this well. David Bruce Smith is the author of the new children's book, Abigail and John. It's about the famous first couple from Massachusetts. And just like Abigail and John's success in life, the book is also the result of collaboration. David wrote the text while his mother, the noted artist Clarice Smith, provided the illustrations. Abigail and John is the first in Smith's The Grateful American book series, which will focus on the partnerships between historical couples. Now before we begin, please remember to subscribe to Conversations wherever you get your podcasts. We're on 12 different platforms at this point, including Spotify and Pandora, so we've got something for everyone. And be sure to tune in next week when we discuss digital history with Dr. Lauren Moulds. But for now, let's figure out how to talk with children but th- thanks again for coming today. appreciate it. My pleasure. Looking forward to it. And, um, you know, I, I think I gave you a sense of the game plan and sort of the big themes that uh, I thought we might talk about, but really I wanted, to, I wanted to start with your decision to pursue a career as a writer, because if I recall correctly, you had started your career in real estate uh, in the kind of the family business, right? And then you moved into uh, becoming a writer. That's correct. So, It's a very interesting question, because
1: if the things that were available, technologically speaking, Mm -hmm. had existed 30 years ago, my trajectory would have been different. I had envisioned, uh, I mean, the dream was to be the next Philip Roth. Mm -hmm. The problem is, I didn't really have that much confidence in my talent, and in those days, if you wanted to make it with a capital M, mm-hmm. you had to be in New York. Okay? I see. Mm-hmm. That, that is no longer true. You can be in Idaho with a computer, and you're, you're fine. I mean, when I used to do stories in journalism school uh, NYU, I had to go to the person mm-hmm. and conduct the interview. Now it's just email. Sure. So, so it's it's a lot easier. So, what happened was, um, I had a lot of doubts about going to New York. I didn't want to leave the family, mm-hmm. um, and my father asked me if I would be willing to be a residential property manager for six weeks mm-hmm. one, in, in the summer. And I thought, you know, he's been so generous. Um, I was willing to do it. Mm-hmm. And about three days into it, one of my resident managers said to me, and I've never forgotten this, you know, this business gets into your blood. Uh-huh. And she was right. Mm-hmm. So I, I stayed until uh, September. I did my last, um, my last uh, semester at NYU. And then, as I, I was supposed to go back, um, I was uh, uh, I got a job uh, w- with the Barone Report, mm-hmm. which was part of the National Journal where I had worked, and I was going to go back in March. March came and went because I decided I didn't want the job, I but I didn't want to admit <laughs> that I liked it. Yeah. So. I was there for years. Mm-hmm. Ye- I mean, after eight years, my father said to me, Are you staying? <laughs> and I said, Dad, uh, it's eight years. Yeah. I'm, yes. You're committed at that point. I mean, but see, what happened was I learned that property management improved my writing because wow. I learned you you had to do inspections all the time, mm-hmm. you had to be very conscious of plants and texture and and design. So those things that I learned as far as being um, more observant, mm-hmm. I, I was able to use in my writing. Now, the other thing is that, I, and a lot of this I didn't realize until after I was 30. My parents were art collectors. Mm-hmm they collected 17th century Dutch paintings. And very often they would say, well, what do you think of this? And I would say, well, I don't know. I don't don't have the vocabulary to tell you. Mm -hmm. I was in sixth grade. I I don't have the vocabulary to tell you how I feel. And they would say, it doesn't matter. Just tell us your opinion. Mm -hmm. And that did a lot of good, and and a lot of that was brought forward, and um, how I managed things later on, unbeknownst to me. Mm-hmm. So somehow I was able to combine real estate with writing on the side. So I would do book reviews. I did uh, I did five books about my grandfather. Mm-hmm. I did a book on Tennessee Williams, so I, I had somehow managed to unconsciously combine
0: mm-hmm. the two um, things that I liked, so I wasn't frustrated. So I guess in, in another way to put it is, you know, over the course of, of writing property reports, as you say, and observing different aspects of property, you learn how to you know, compartmentalize ideas and express those in clear ways that you were able then to translate uh, at the same time into book reviews or thinking about how to write oh, more yeah. long and
1: form pieces. It definitely sharpened my senses. I didn't expect that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also was very lucky um, with the people who I worked with mm-hmm. because the first, the people I worked with in residential were five older women. Uh, from 47 to 80, and they, they really, really, really mentored me. Mm-hmm. And you know, things that I never would have paid attention, like landscaping, um, you know, the cleanliness of that corner, sure. um, the, the cleanliness of the top of a door. I mean, all the details were, I was, I was
0: taught well. Mm-hmm. To be observant. Yeah. The same connection there with the, with the paintings, the art collection that your parents had as well. Right. Uh,
1: i no, I mean, I, uh, I wasn't aware of it, but suddenly at
0: 30, all these things became conscious. Came together. Yeah. And so what was your first major writing project? You, you had talked, you said that you had done some book reviews and whatnot, but, um, uh, you had written some some books about your grandfather what was what was the, the first time you you decided you know what i 'm going to write a book Well, the first one was uh, a a book uh,
1: about him. He was working on a memoir he had hired somebody mm-hmm. to be a co-author, and he asked me what I thought mm-hmm. and i I told him that i wasn 't all that happy with um with what she had done and he said well then you do it and and who was your grandfather would you mind telling us a bit about him oh Charles E Smith Mm -hmm. founder of the Charles E Smith companies he did not do Crystal City that was my father Robert but um, he built apartments uh, and uh, office buildings in the area he was a philanthropist and uh, Actually, the thing that he was most proud of was the Charles E. Smith Jewish Day School, mm-hmm. which is the largest Jewish day school in North
0: America. Oh, is that right? Wow. And and he invited you to critique so he something said, that he, he had said, written. So
1: so since you're not happy, you mm-hmm. you do it. I said okay, but I I felt that I needed a a, um, a co-author because. I think uh, it can be a little dicey, even though we were very close. My grandfather and I, Mm -hmm. I was 25, he was 84. Uh, I don't know if the dynamic for co-authoring at at those two ages is great. Mm -hmm. I was afraid of that because I knew that I had to try to get things from him um, in his early life Sure. That he didn't want to talk about, mm-hmm. so I thought the best way to do it was to get a co-author which which I did, and his name was Peter Muller, and we would work you know every afternoon i had we had the manuscript mm-hmm. we would work every afternoon for I don't know six months or whatever it was, and put it together and then and then I had to show it to
0: everybody in the family, which was Fairly interesting. It <laughs> must be an interesting process. Yeah. At what point did you begin working with your mother Clarice? Because she, you know, very renowned artist, um, paints, you know, beautiful paintings. And right.
1: So she, I asked her to do the cover of mm-hmm. Building My Life, which was the first memoir of my about Papa Charlie, mm-hmm. my grandfather. And uh, and then as projects came along, I just asked her because. She's the best, and mm-hmm. i and I liked working with her, so we have been working together for
0: thirty years. Wow, what's that relationship been like i mean i I think it would be fun to work with my own mother on some projects, but how you know how do you sustain that kind of collaborative relationship? Well, you know somebody asked me about that uh
1: regarding uh Abigail and John uh-huh and um the answer in that project in particular, is the illustrations are mm-hmm. far more complicated than our relationship. Mm-hmm. And what I mean is, there is a Harry Potter quality to Abigail and John in that kids can read it on their own. Mm-hmm. Older kids can read, I'm sorry, little kids can be, uh, can have their parents read it to sure. them. Older kids can read it on their own. but each each age group can take what it wants from the illustrations because some people will mm-hmm. see them as very um, simple
0: mm-hmm.
1: and older people would see them as complex mm-hmm. and that's an important story to tell because it moves it moves the narrative along too
0: well. Um- I want to ask you about your decision to write this particular book, uh, because this is the the, f- the inaugural book in your Great American Book Series. Um, why why focus on Abigail and John? Uh, what did you th- What did you hope that you could achieve in that book, and then you know, impart to young readers? Okay, so there were two things that collided
1: over a period of time. One was a few years ago, I was l- listening to NPR. Mm-hmm. And I heard um, that uh, the uh, American Revolution Museum had done a survey, and 89% of the survi- surveyed mm-hmm. believed that the Revolutionary War took place after the Civil War. Huh. So that made me very nervous, mm-hmm. and that I makes figured... Me very nervous. I figured how can I contribute to making that better? Mm-hmm. So I started the Grateful American Foundation, and that was doing podcasts. I see. But it's very difficult to get, I mean, unless you have a lot of money behind mm-hmm. it or influential people, it's very difficult to get them out there. Absolutely. The other thing that happened is I was I was coming here and I was going to Montpelier and mm-hmm. other uh, first uh, founding father homes, and I noticed that here it said George Washington's Mount Vernon, and at Mount Pelier it said James uh, Madison's mm-hmm. Mount and I I I didn't like that because um, I, I thought one it it um, neglected two very important. Um, wives, and it, and it failed to lure little girls. Mm -hmm. And if you can get little girls to visit properties that, you know, they might perceive as belonging to old men, Mm -hmm. um, then you raise historical literacy over time. Sure. Historical literacy is, you know, the anecdotally they say, uh, Kids don't know anything about history, but that isn't really true in my in my opinion. I think that um, kids are not being taught right. And the claim that they don't know history mm-hmm. doesn't mean that they that they're not curious. I mean, think about Ancestry.com or 23 and and me. Mm-hmm. Those are very popular. I mean really popular. Yeah. Now you start with your history, but it can lead to mm-hmm. other things. Sure. So I think it's a contradictory message. I also think that um, there is not corporate. I mean, you know, we we are t- the only country in America, I, a country in the world, I think, that you know takes money from education for things that are takes money from education that's and puts it into. Th- other things that might not be a priority, mm-hmm. and um, I think you know, teachers are having to pay for supplies now. Mm-hmm. That was not the case when I went to school. And wouldn't it be nice if these large companies who say, "Well, when we get a graduate, he or she can't read uh, he or she cannot write or think analytically." Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be nice if if in certain communities, large companies like Raytheon or or somebody like that would put money into their future Mm -hmm. employee pool. I'm not sure that's too widespread,
0: but it seems to be something that could help Mm -hmm. the problem. And so are companies like that supporting your foundation and then in turn helping you produce these books?
1: No, and my, I mean my foundation. It, I'm 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 doing it. You're fine. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not looking for that. Sure. But I, I mean, for you know the macro. I see. I population. see. Population, um, and then uh, this this book is mm-hmm. being is is being distributed by Simon and Schuster. So, mm-hmm. it, it, it's a, This isn't a, a privately
0: printed. But it, but it's designed to fill that kind of need you were talking about to to help. Entice or help, help the curious children who may not be getting the historical knowledge that, you know, you or I may have gotten when we were in school to help, you know, excite them and be curious about history by using Abigail and John Right. On. To
1: bring them into that world. I think I didn't answer your question properly because Abigail and John are a... Uh, I wanted to, the purpose of the series is to feature historical and or presidential couples that had marriages that were partnerships. Mm-hmm. Now, in this particular case, Abigail and John are about, there are, there are a lot of stories because most of the time he was, he was traveling, he mm-hmm. was rising in politics. Sure. Somebody said that uh, if you added up all the time that he was away from her during the marriage, it would, be, it would have been 10 years. Wow, so that sounds she, about right, yeah. so meanwhile, she had to uh, run the farm mm-hmm. no slaves mm-hmm. because uh, and that was a very unusual position to take. and she had to be entrepreneurial, and that meant selling you know crops. but also I think she all I think she also did something with handicrafts I'm not mm. I'm not sure, but I think she did something else to move things along. And then she had to take the kids to uh, to uh, uh, the smallpox mm-hmm. vaccine, yeah. which, which was very risky in those days. and But what held them together, and then they had the, a, a son who was a president. Sure. That would not happen for 175 years. Two other, a, a daughter who died, mm-hmm. a, Another daughter named Nabby, and then the two boys. Mm-hmm. The two boys were alcoholics. So I think even though they were great as a team, mm-hmm. they might have been a little too attached. Uh mm-hmm. and the the boys suffered. Sure. But they were they were loving, they mm-hmm. were confident, and they were equal. Mm-hmm. So when she says in March of 1776, while they're writing the Declaration of Independence, mm-hmm. remember the ladies. She's not messing around. Right. I mean, it took a hundred years, but yeah. but she, for her to say that then, mm-hmm. that was a that was a pretty. It, old, was a, it was a pretty big deal. Yeah,
0: and and I th- the title gets goes back to I think what you were saying about the. The need to excite, you know, young girls about history and to and to help them see, you know, the historical place of women in in right. early America. You know, it's a conscious choice to put her, Abigail's name first as opposed to John, which I you know a lot Cor- of people that's would, correct. A lot of people would normally put John and Abigail, but here it's Abigail and John. So right off the bat, you're clearly signaling that that you know, women have an are, held an important place and that young young girls can get excited about. The history as well. Well, that's the most important
1: statement by me, mm-hmm. as far as the book goes. That her name goes first. That when the Madisons are done, or when I do that book, mm-hmm. that Dolly, uh, that Dolly is first, because mm-hmm. uh, she did other
0: wonderful things. Sure. And as we said, your your mother provided the illustrations for Abigail and John. And I was, and I should say, as part of your website, you know, you have some educator content. You know, how to teach this book. One of the things I was reading through was how to think about the artwork, and it goes back to something you said earlier about when you were—I think you said you were in—you were, you were six or you were in sixth grade—and you, grade. you were asked to think about seventeenth-century European art. And the question you were asked was, "Well, how does it make you feel?" And there was a, a similar question I saw in the educator content, and so, yeah. How do you, what do you hope that children are able to accomplish by not simply identifying what's happening in a scene, but able to uh, fuel an emotional response to something that they are seeing?
1: I think kids really need to be able to imagine mm-hmm. now because, you know, when we were, when we were young, You didn't know what anything... You couldn't Google, you know, what does Paris look like or something. You imagined it. And, you know, technology has sort of truncated Mm -hmm. that. I think it's so important for kids to just imagine. Mm -hmm. And you know what? If they don't get all the facts, right, right, that's okay. But imagine what it was like, for example, to live in those times without any of the stuff mm-hmm. in terms of conveniences that we have, because a lot of kids don't know that. It's not their fault. I sure. mean, that's, they're just not t- necessarily taught. So I would say imagination is the most important thing.
0: And then as you as a writer, you, you wrote the, the, the text. How um, how did you learn how to write for children? How did you how to learn to write, as I said, thinking about earlier, compartmentalize ideas, but but in this case, for a much younger audience, you know, how do you, how do you do that? Because I find that very interesting. Because I, you know, we we all talk about the question of of approaching multiple audiences, and it's never it's something I've never done. And so, how did how did you approach the task of writing, for little people?
1: Well, that's that's interesting. Um, so we did an, an earlier book on John Marshall mm. in two thousand thirteen. It was it was a commission. And I told the John Marshall Foundation that I had never written for children. Mm-hmm. I had no idea how to do it and, you know, yeah, how was I gonna do it? And, and basically they said, well, you'll you'll work through it and we'll help you, and I said, fine. And I discovered that writing for children, now this is second and third grade, okay. Abigail and, and John are, are say, uh, preschool to 8th grade. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I discovered that it's like doing a cooking reduction. Oh,
0: I like that. I so know.
1: you have to bring everything to its lowest mm-hmm. simplest form. And if you c- cannot if you cannot understand what you've written, mm-hmm. you have to throw it out. Throw it out. For this book, um since it was a, an older I mean, there was a spread, and I had something called an educational editor. I had never heard of such a thing, oh. but had I have a wonderful educate educational editor. And my publisher said that I needed her to make sure that everything was historically correct. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, I gave you three sources for every whatever. He said, that doesn't matter. Just because you have three sources doesn't mean they're accurate. So I have this wonderful, um, her name is Tori, wonderful uh, educational editor who, you know, helped me. He She helped me with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I. that's really the answer because yeah. I'm still learning about it. It it was a little easier than John Marshall because it was... I mean, your vocabulary is so limited Uh when you're doing second and third graders as opposed to, you know, something up to eighth grade. I remember when my mother... and uh, When we thought we were doing an older age group and then it changed to a lower age group, she had done a... She had to do a side view of the interior... Of John Marshall's boyhood home oh. and how it would be furnished. Mm-hmm. So, she did the side view, but nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- when it was when it was going to be older, she furnished it. No, sorry. When when it was going to be older, she didn't furnish it. Mm-hmm. It was just the side view, and you know. So when when they asked us to make it uh, a younger. Audience, they said to my mother, Where's the furniture? Huh. And she said, w- What do you mean? You told me you didn't want any furniture. They said, But a little person is going to say, Where's the furniture? Whereas an older might not. Mm-hmm. So it, I mean, everything was affected. I mean, she was a, what her work was, a, had to change much mm-hmm. more than mine because, you sure. know, it was all visual
0: visual and in a different way mm-hmm. than mine was. But it was, uh, as you say, it was a process of distillation and of learning. I like that idea about, you know, cooking like reduction down to, down to its basis elements. Um, and I think you said you are, are intent on pursuing uh, Dolly and James Madison next, is that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so one of the questions I was thinking about is, as you said, you know, with Abigail and John um, in, in the New England colonies, there isn't really a significant presence of slavery. Um, you, know, you see it more slavery as you head south and in New York, and certainly in the Chesapeake, slavery is a dominant uh, institution. Seems like that would be something you'd have to confront with Dolly and James. And so I guess one of the th- things I'm thinking about is how do you, how do you teach something like slavery to a young person? Uh, using you know, uh, using the pro style that you've developed, and using uh, and your mother's using your her illustrations because you know we're we're at a moment right now. You know, we're sitting at George Washington's Mount Vernon, and there have been a lot of of uh, press recently about how people are coming to Mount Vernon, Monticello, Mount Pelier, and they're tired of hearing about slavery. But at the end of the day, slavery was a foundational part of life at these places, and so right. how do you communicate that to a young person delicately? Mm-hmm. Um, so when we were doing the research
1: for John Marshall my mother and I noticed that you know the children the, first there weren't that many children's books about him mm-hmm. then and what existed was kind of old but the the way w- these books were set up was you, you know like you know John Marshall's born mm-hmm. he becomes successful he he he's the chief justice, and he dies well where's where's all the conflict right and we put a little of that in in the book, but I had to take some of it out mm-hmm. not i mean against my will but but i i wanted I wanted kids to know like they lost four children. Mm-hmm. Uh, his wife was depressed because of that. I wanted all those things to be addressed in a age appropriate way. Sure. So some had to be, I was told to take out, fine, but uh, it made the book a little flat. Mm. Um, with um, Dolly and James, uh, you know, you don't have to make a, a big case out of it. All you have to do is, you know, it's like a brush stroke. Mm-hmm. Just mention it, and um, a, and move on. I mean, I, I I certainly wouldn't cover it up.
0: Sure, you're, but you, yeah, acknowledge its presence. But oh, not yeah. you know for oh, yeah. for that age group, it would be difficult to. I mean, to, you to, have to get to, all the complexities.
1: You have to show the reader that these people had complicated lives. Mm-hmm. You know, I started something called the Grateful American Book Prize. And it's for, um, it's an award for um, writing um, for 7th and 8th graders for nonfiction and historical fiction. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the things that kids uh, are exposed to now it's mm-hmm. it's I mean it's a completely different world that I wouldn't know about if I weren't reading all these books. Mm-hmm. I pick seventh and eighth grades, seventh, eighth, and ninth grades because that's the worst time of of um usually of someone's life. Oh yeah. And <laughs> and at the very least, reading during those years especially can be
0: like a paper psychiatrist. Helps them build confidence, helps them see themselves in either fictional or historic characters. But what What's What excites you next? You know, you've got Dolly and James on the horizon. What Where else do you want to go?
1: Well, the third one, at one time, was gonna be Hamilton, but that's been scratched. <laughs> so, actually, when I spoke to my mother about it, she was interested in doing the Monroe's. Oh. Um I don't know. I mean, you say James Monroe and most people don't know who that is, but that doesn't right. that doesn't mean he wouldn't be interesting. He was a friend of of John Marshalls. Sure. They went to school together. That whole group, you know, they I don't think there's ever been a group that they all lived at the same time and There were more, there was more greatness uh, in that era, you know, than any time in history, Mm -hmm. I think. I mean, think, I mean, think about it. Patrick Henry, Dolly, Dolly Madison, uh, Martha Washington, uh, uh, just anybody. They're all of the same era. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's ever,
0: I mean, maybe the... um, what do they call the the greatest generation? Greatest generation, yeah. Yeah. Well, but I think you're right because it, you know they they were all there in, at the right time and the right moment, and, and particularly in Virginia, right? There's a reason we call it the Virginia Dynasty because Virginians dominated that era so significantly. So I think Monroe would be cool because you're right. You know, we get you know we get to Jefferson, we get to Madison, and then it's like um, then there was this Monroe guy and his wife, and who were they? But even I mean, George yeah. Mason I mean somebody even like George that. Mason right just down the road here Patrick Henry well Patrick Henry is really fascinating too because he you know speaking of, of you know hardship uh, in the family you know his his first wife suffered yeah. terribly from depression to the point of uh, madness uh, right. and died in horrible horrible conditions um, hit 18 children he, uh, he he did he was very prolific uh, with his oratory and uh, with his reproductive capabilities. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think that would be another uh, fruitful area as well, certainly. Well, uh, David Bruce Smith, thank you very much for taking the time to come in and speak with us. This has been a pleasure. I should note that Abigail and John comes out this November uh, to a bookstore near you and hopefully uh, to schools everywhere. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Conversations at the Washington Library, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambuske, with assistance from Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. Our theme was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider becoming a Mount Vernon member. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.